Feels like it could almost be morning. I hope you're having a great week. And here it is, midweek, middle of another week. It's just crazy, you know, we walk away from Sundays and Mondays, first of the work week, and then you turn around and it's Wednesday, and then you headed straight for the weekend. Speaking of the old rugged cross and dates and times and all of that, you realize we have an early Easter this year, a March Easter, March 31st. So Easter is only about a month and a week away. Didn't we just have Christmas? <laughs> Feels that way, doesn't it? You know what they say, time flies when you're having fun. That's what they used to say. I think now time just flies, period. Anyway, I'm glad we have flown into midweek service, and it is so good to see each of you tonight. I'm excited about what we'll talk about tonight. We have tonight and one more Wednesday night, and we will wrap up this How We Got the Bible business. And I'm really excited about where we're going after that on Wednesday nights. We're going to do a whole series on The Bible Does Not Say That. Some of you may have seen my post yesterday. And uh, I, I did. I will, I'll go ahead and play my hand a little bit. You know, one of the things that we hear so often when you're going through a struggle, people will come up to you and say, hang in there because the Bible says the Lord will not put more on us than we can bear. How many of you have ever heard that? Now, don't raise your hand. How many of you ever said that? Some of us probably have. Well, the fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to bear up under because he will always give with any temptation a way of escape. Hey, that's a good promise, isn't it? If you're tempted like I am, that's a great promise, but... A lot of people in Scripture, God allowed more difficult circumstances than the people around them could even understand to be placed on them for a variety of reasons. And I'll hold all of that off for a couple of weeks. But there are several things that we might think the Bible says that the Bible doesn't actually say. So we'll, we'll do a few weeks after next week talking about some things that the Bible does not say. All right, just to let you know where we're going. Who has something good to share with us tonight? Boy, haven't we, though. I was out at one point today. I don't know how accurate. I think it's relatively accurate because it just feels that way. But I was out at one point today, and the little thermometer in my car said it was 67. So it was nearly, did anybody get 70 today? That was near, you did, Charles? It, nearly 70. And the only thing bad about that is just I didn't get to be outside in it very much. Just a little bit. I did walk out one time and just face the sun and close my eyes and took in a little vitamin D that way. Um, but uh, that is a blessing. We were talking about it before the service start, and I told Miss Dana, you know what will happen to us, right? In March, probably about Easter, we'll get a, yeah, we'll get something. <laughs> but, you know, we take it as it comes. So thankful for two very beautiful days. Who else? Who else? Yes. Okay. Amen. You were asking for that. Praise the Lord there. Anybody else? 27 days till spring. Yeah. I like what our little friend Emily Goodman says. Emily McKinney, as we know her best. Emily says that meteorological spring starts in March, 1st of March. So that means we're only a couple of weeks away. I'll take it. Yeah, that's right. I've seen a lot of those. Who else? Mr. Danny.
Thank you. Who else? Anybody else? Amen. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing that. Who else? Anybody else? Yes. 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 Amen. Praise God for that. Anyone else? I have a first cousin, many of you knew his dad, my uncle Paul, Paul Dodson, that was with Kentucky State Police for his career. Uh, his son, my cousin Dale, has been in the hospital for about a week now. Uh, he had a polyp that couldn't be removed when they did his colonoscopy. is a little larger than could be done that way, and so they had to go in pretty invasively. To take it out, and he's had a difficult time healing, but uh, has improved to the point that he got to go home today, so we're thankful for that. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. Very good. So Miss Judy Fain had a doctor's appointment in Texas that went well, so very grateful for that. Anyone else? Okay. All right. Oh, my. Wow. Keep that in our prayers tonight. Well, let's bow together and we'll have a few moments of reflection and prayer from our hearts before we get started with our study tonight. Uh, we begin by just adoring God, praising Him for who He is. When we praise God for His grandeur and glory, we see ourselves as we are. Sometimes we just need to take a moment and confess. And So let's just take that moment tonight. If you have something for which you need to confess from your heart, would you do that to the Lord? Now, thanksgiving, praise God for your many blessings.
Take a moment now and pray for others, for needs that you know of in their lives, and then your own needs. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised, and tonight we do that. Thank you, Father, for this time together in the middle of a week where we can come, fellowship, share prayer concerns, pray from our hearts, and then, Father, pray on the behalf of of those we know of who have needs. Thank you, Father, that you hear our prayers. Lord, I pray that you help us Uh, to be patient as we wait on you. Father, there's so much to be gained in life when we wait on you to answer prayers, when we wait on you, Father, to give us guidance and direction. Lord, the Bible says that those who wait on you will renew their strength. And Father, we pray that that would be the case tonight, that we would be renewed in our spiritual energy and strength as we just wait on you. But Father, as we wait, we just thank you for the answer to prayers. Lord, we've heard even in the room already tonight of how you're at work in our lives, how, Father, you have answered prayers that have recently been prayed. And Lord, we just glorify you, we worship you in light of that tonight. Lord, I pray that you would bless us now as we think about how we receive this perfect treasure in your word. Help us, Lord, to remember that it is the light to our feet, the shining light to our path, that, Father, we can walk in righteousness and in your will. Lord, help us never to be people who would defend what we think we know about your word when we're not willing to live by it. I pray, Father, that your word would change us from the inside out as, Lord, we try to live our lives for your glory. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. To get us started tonight, I do want to take you to just a few verses And it's not going to be my purpose to provide a lot of comment on these verses, but they are just precious to me. I may have shared with you before that in my devotional life, I continuously read through the Psalms. So I I begin at Psalm 1, read a Psalm or a part of a Psalm each day till I get to the end, 150, and then I go back and do that. It's just been a practice of mine for a lot of years, and this morning uh, I was actually at a section of Psalm 119 that, uh, that has to do with what we'll talk about tonight, and so I want to read that for you. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, and just to give you a little thought about it, it's divided by the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. If you've ever read through Psalm 119 and you wondered what those funny letters are or the funny word is at the beginning of each section, it's the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Val, Zion, Het, Tet, Yod, Kop, Lamed, Mem, Num, Psalmic, Ayan, Pei, Sadi, Koth, Reis, Sheen, and Tav. So it's broken down each section beneath one of those alphabetic letters in the Hebrew language. Well, this is the Lamed, the L section that begins in verse 89. I've quoted this verse a lot. You've heard me say it probably several times in my preaching, and it has everything to do with the Bibles that we read, God's Word, as it's revealed to us. 
Notice that the psalmist writes and says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So God's word is eternally settled. That means what? That means that the word men of old received by direct revelation from God is relevant to us today because it's an eternal word. It's not a dated word. It's eternally relevant. Your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. That's just how strong God is when he establishes anything. So the psalmist uses creation as an illustration for the eternal nature of God's word. He's already said that his word is settled in heaven. And then he writes, look how faithful you are. You've been faithful to all generations as they've displayed really your handiwork. You've established heaven or earth rather, and it abides. Uh, the, the same program, if you would, that God established in the universe at the very first week of creation abides to this day in 2024. That's how firm God is when he establishes something. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Now think about that verse for just a moment. What kind of mess would we each and every one be in tonight if we did not have the word of God? You ever think about that? If we didn't have God's revelation specifically from his word, what kind of mess would we be in if we didn't have the Ten Commandments? If we didn't have God's ordinances, we would be afflicted and probably would have perished. I will not forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. I have seen the consummation of all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. In other words, Lord, your precepts, your word, your commandment is everything. It encompasses all areas of life. Well, let's get back to our talk through how we got the Bible I know that this has been a little bit of a stretch for some of us, but I hope at the end of it that it's been meaningful to you because I think that as we live in a more and more post-Christian culture, I think we're going to have to defend things that we didn't used to have to defend. You know, we used to assume that the people around us at least had an acknowledgement of the Word of God and an appreciation for the work of the church, even if they were far from it. But those are not our days anymore. We have people uh, that are living in abject darkness, and often we get questions about why we believe the Bible or why we make a stand for this thing or the other thing. So I hope that this is helpful for you as you encounter conversations in life. Now, having said that, uh, I could have finished everything up tonight and had planned to, but I've divided it between tonight and next Wednesday night because I really want to take my time tonight in case you have any questions. Because we're at a point, if you remember last time we engaged the study, we were able to come up to the translation of the King James Bible. And that sort of set a lot of things in motion because the King James Bible was legal 
and it was widely printed. You know, the printing press was available by that point, and people all over England could have the Word of God, the King James Bible. We talked about the Geneva Bible that was actually printed even before that, that the pilgrims brought here to the New World on the Mayflower when they arrived at Plymouth those years ago. But from the King James on forward, we're going to begin to see a lot of different translations in the English language. So that, that was the first broadly accepted, published, and printed translation of the English Bible. And from that point forward, we're going to see all kinds of different translations. Do you know that some people even get angry about translations of Scripture. And here's what I will say, um, and I'll say much more actually next week because that's where we're going. Next week, I want to walk you through several of the modern translations of Scripture and show you what's beneficial and maybe sometimes what's not beneficial. But here's what I can say. And I've said it a lot of times to a lot of people when they've asked me, well, Alan, what translation of the Bible do you recommend? And without equivocation or hesitation, I look them in the eye and I say this, the one you'll read the most. The one that you will spend time in taking in the Word of God because what we'll find out as we work through this is that uh, they're, they're more alike than they are different. Now, let me bring you to another thought, and tonight I think will help you with this. Have you ever in your own personal Bible study been comparing maybe the King James translation to a more modern translation, and you look at a verse, maybe a whole verse, or perhaps a word, and you see that it's in the King James translation, but maybe not in this other translation. Have you ever encountered that? Maybe people have even asked you. Now, you know, I, I grew up on the King James, but I've been reading this other translation. And then the other day, I got to the end of the book of Mark, for example. And there are verses at the end of Mark that are in the King James Bible and I don't find them in this Bible. Why in the world is that? Well, let me ask you tonight. Do you have an idea about why that might be? Do you have any idea about why that might be? Why one particular modern translation may not have a word the King James does or vice versa? Well, I hope when we finish this tonight you'll have an idea about what that might be. So I'm going to walk you through, and, and by the way, I should have said this before I even flip my page there. Uh, this typically is when you're dealing with the New Testament. You're not going to find hardly any variations between one translation of the Old Testament and the other other than English. You know, there may be a more modern word that the translators for one translation might choose to, work, to use than, than perhaps the King James, etc. But uh, usually it's in the New Testament. And that's because there are two different sources. This is important that you hear this up front. There are two different sources for the New Testament when it comes to English translations. These are some big Latin words here, uh, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. First of all is the textus receptus. And we've already talked about this. You may not remember it, but how many of you remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about this fellow by the name of Erasmus. All right. Erasmus compiled together what is known as the textus Receptus. Now I'm going to go back even further than that. If you remember when we were talking about 
the New Testament as it first came out. It didn't come out as a compiled group of books, but they were what? Separate scrolls. You remember we had that conversation? Uh, Mark would write his gospel, it'd be copied, it'd spread around, and it would exist as a codex, a, a book to itself, or even on a scroll at times. Uh, same with the letters of Paul. Paul would write a letter and he would even at times instruct the original church that received that letter to send it on to the next church. And often they would make those copies and send them on. So there had to be a bringing together, you know, when God directed for the New Testament to be complete, as we know it, Matthew through Revelation, there had to be a bringing together of that, all of those 27 books in one volume. Well, the first one that would be brought together that way is what we call the Textus Receptus. It was published and printed the Greek New Testament again by Erasmus. We talked about him weeks ago. And it first came out in 1516. So the first copied, and by that I mean copied by a printing press, version of the New Testament was in 1516. The oldest manuscripts, now what are the manuscripts? The original writings or the copies of the original writings. The oldest manuscripts were from the 11th century and they were Paul's letters. So when Erasmus put together this set of the New Testament in 1516, the oldest thing he had to go by came from the 11th century and this would be the set of Greek writings, the New Testament that Martin Luther would use. We talked about William Tyndale. This is where he got the New Testament. And then the King James translators all translated the New Testament out of what is called the Textus Receptus. So you need to keep two things in mind. Number one, this set called the Textus Receptus. And then the next set that's going to take me a little more time to talk to you about because it came about a good bit later. Now, again, words you don't need to remember, but the Novum Testamentum Greke, or the Greek New Testament, came from three different sources. First of all, the Codex Alexandrinus, 1629. That became available, and it dated back to the 400s A.D., all right? So, who lived in the first century A.D.? Jesus, the disciples, the early New Testament churches. You know, we've been talking on Sunday mornings about the Jerusalem church, the Antioch church. Those are first century churches. So from the first century when they were originally written, the oldest that we have available at this particular point, but we're going to find some older ones in just a minute, is from the 400s. And in 1629, it was made available to Western scholars. It's one of the earliest and most complete copies of the New Testament. So I want you to, to keep this in mind. I'm going to go back a page. The oldest manuscript that Erasmus had available when he put together the Textus Receptus came from the 11th century. Now we're getting to copies that were found from the 4th, actually that would be the 5th century. The 400s would be the 5th century. So we, 
We're going earlier to the source. Does that make sense? So from the 11th century to the 5th century. Then you have the Codex Sinaiticus, and you can hear it in the word. It was discovered near Mount Sinai. Discovered in the mid-1800s, the earliest known complete copy of the New Testament copied in about the 300s A.D. And again, found at an ancient monastery near Mount Sinai. And scholars, as they begin to work with this particular group of New Testament books, uh, they notice how very carefully, how intricately they were copied, how they were corrected. It's one of the most reliable surviving manuscripts of the New Testament. I'm going to give you one more. The Codex Vaticanus, that is named that way because for many years now it's been preserved in the Catholic Church in the archives there at the Vatican. It's the earliest and probably most reliable surviving copy of the New Testament made available in 1889. Dates back to the early 300s seems to be just slightly older than the one we just talked about. And it's believed to have been housed at Caesarea. That's that city on the coast in Israel, out on the Mediterranean where Paul was imprisoned, where uh, he stood before Festus, where uh, Peter led Cornelius to faith in Christ, That was an area of scholarship and libraries, etc. And it's believed to have come from there together with the Codex Sinaiticus that we talked about a moment ago, brought to Italy probably from Constantinople in the mid-1400s. Here's the thing. It dates back to the 300s. I'm going to go back a page. So now we're looking at two full copies of the Greek New Testament, both from the 300s A.D. So to go back to that big thing that I have there on top, the Novum Testamentum Graeche, which is the Greek New Testament, it's the compilation of all of those three. So the Alexandrian text, the Sinai text, and that that's been held at the Vatican. It, scholars came together. They took the three of those, uh, took into consideration any minor variants and that kind of thing, and, and agreed on together what is now what we call the, the minority text, the Greek New Testament, released first in 1927. Since 1927, there have been more editions that came out. By the way, that's the Greek New Testament that I cut my teeth on. When you you go to seminary and, and do a particular degree that requires you to learn the biblical languages, this is the New Testament that you learn how to read and translate and all of those things because, again, it's older. The manuscripts that make it up are older, come from a source closer to, etc. And so this is the New Testament Greek that uh, a lot of the modern translations are based on. So nearly all of them. In fact, I really don't know a modern translation of Scripture that's based on the same textus receptus for the New Testament that the King James is. So that's why. Here's your answer. That's why there are a few textual differences between the King King James Bible and several of the modern translations. In other words... There are subtle disagreements, and and I want you to hear me clearly say that. Nothing is major. Now, there can be major 
things happen when it's inappropriately translated, and we'll talk about that next week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to identify some modern translations that I don't think you need to read from because I do not think that they are well translated. And we'll talk about that next week. But those that are, when you find a little bit of variance or, or disagreement or a word omitted in one or maybe even a verse omitted in one that's in the other, that's because Textus Receptus is what the King James translators had. This is what the more modern translators have. Does that make any sense? Does that, does that help you understand? And, and please hear me, it's not my purpose. It's 100% not my purpose to convince you that you ought to favor one particular translation over the other. You know, you favor the one that you'll study. <laughs> you know, that's why I said what I said earlier. When somebody asks me, Brother Allen, do you, do you want to recommend a translation? I will say, here are a few that I personally wouldn't use. But outside of those, the one you'll read the most, the one you'll study the most, the one you'll meditate on the most, ought to be the one you choose. That's, that's my opinion there. So I, I just want you to, to, to be informed and to understand why. Because I believe that we live in a time when people will use anything they can use as ammunition against the church and against the Word of God. And I, I think if you don't hear it now, I think your kids and your grandchildren are certainly starting to hear it. And if they don't hear it in the local public schools, when they go to the colleges and universities, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, they'll hear it. And that's why I think it's important for us to, to be people who are well-informed and, and understand that the treasure we have in God's Word, our English copies of the Bible... They did not just drop down out of heaven. Now the word that's translated here for us did drop out of heaven. But it came in different languages. It came in different places. It, it, it came at different times. And we, we need to be people who understand how we got it into our English Bibles that have changed our lives. So those differences, I want to be very clear about this, there are two New Testament, Greek New Testaments that are used to produce translations into whatever language, whether it's English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, hillbilly English. We don't have a hillbilly English translation. Maybe we need one. Uh, whatever, you, you, you get my drift, whatever language it's translated into, the New Testament is either translated from the Textus Receptus or it's translated from, I'll just use the English equivalent, what we call the New Testament Greek. Are there any questions about that? Yes. Right. Yeah. That's that's a. I don't know if everybody over here heard her question, but it's a great question. She said we talked about how the letters and the gospels were sent out uh, individually, and has there been a tracking down of all of this? Well, here's the thing. There, there is no original, what they call, what scholars call the autographs. There are no original autographs that have ever been discovered. In other words, there are no 
original scroll or vellum, whatever the case would have been that it was written on, that has been discovered to date. Now, I'm not going to say that it'll never be discovered because we continuously, archaeologists continuously discover older and older things. So the first part to answer your question is that there are no originals. No, ma'am. No. There are no originals. What we have, again, I'll flip back through these, what we have, yeah, what we have is a set from the 300s, another set from the 300s, a set from the 400s, and then the Textus Receptus was based on a set that we had much later than that. Because again, the Textus Receptus uh, was the work of Erasmus, as he put it all together. In the 15th century, the oldest copies that he had were from the 11th century. Okay? I don't know if you heard the second part of her point or her question. It was, you know, kind of how you can put a line of 25 or 30 people together and whisper one thing to the first person and let them, I think it's called pass it down, you know, and just see how it can change. Uh, we've, we've talked about generations, you know, on Sunday morning back a couple of weeks ago, we talked about generations of the church, Jerusalem being the first generation of the church. Well, things, little things, little subtle things can happen unintentionally down through generations of passing something along. And so the, the bottom line is it stands to reason, I'll just put it that way, that the, that the better copies date back to an earlier time. Does that make sense? That the better copies date back to an earlier time. But also, you may have not got to be with us. We, we did spend a night talking about the can, what we call the canonization of the New Testament, how it was all brought together. At the time that the 27 books of the New Testament were brought together, uh, there, there were certainly original copies. But there are no original manuscripts you know, if you, I tell you, if you can find one, let's go on an expedition. <laughs> let's go see if we can find one. If we can find one, you know, if you, if you had something written by the hand of, of Paul or, you know, John Mark <laughs> or the Apostle John, if you could find something like that, it would, you couldn't even put a value on it, obviously. Charles? That, that's, that is a great point. Yeah, let me repeat what Charles said. There would be so many people that would want to make that into an idol. You know, if you could get your hands on something that the Apostle Paul wrote with, with his hand, and it could be however it could, if it could, carbon dating or whatever, if it could be authenticated to the first century, people would, would literally want to worship it. Yes, Mr. Sam. Yes. Yes, yes. Yes, exactly. I'll give you probably, and don't ask me for, for verses. So the last chapter of Mark is chapter 16. And that whole section in chapter 16 that talks about snake handling. Okay? 
Y'all don't handle snakes, do you? You were supposed to have told me that several weeks ago. Just teasing. Just teasing. So so those verses that that talk about lifting up serpents and those kinds of things uh, from, from Mark chapter 16, those verses are in the Textus Receptus, but they are not in the earlier manuscripts. Uh, boy. How do you resolve it? Uh, This is for this is me. This is my opinion, and this is not something. I just want y'all to be exposed to this, okay? So, if y'all leave here tonight and you say, "Well, that that preacher is trying to convince us that that's not what I'm doing," okay? I want to be very, very clear about that. For me, I think the most dependable manuscripts date back earlier, and. So I resolve that by, by thinking, okay, in the Textus Receptus that was put together from a set of copies that are from a much later time, you know, some person, some scribe, some copy, because remember, before we get to Gutenberg, how's all this being copied? By hand, it's being copied by hand. And, you know, once we get to the movable type printing press, you know, it's a different world at that point because what it is is what it is. You make copy after copy after copy. But before that, you know, you, you, the rooms were called scriptoriums and you have these people sitting, taking dictation. And, you know, maybe the person that was calling out the verse or the paragraph of Scripture may have misspoken. I don't know. Uh, For me personally, I think it's more reliable to go by manuscripts that can be proven to date earlier. So that's how I resolve it. Yes, Charles. Yes. Put it in um, brackets. Brackets. Or, uh, italics. And yeah. Note Absolutely. Wasn't in the ab, ab, did everybody hear what Charles says? A lot of your copies of of uh, New Testament scripture, for instance, has anybody looked at Mark sixteen? What are those verses? Okay. Often they will be bracketed. And there will be a note in there somewhere that will say this. Uh, these verses are not found. Something to this effect. These verses are not found in the earlier manuscripts. Okay? Even some uh, King James copies of Scripture that have been copied by certain presses more recently will even do that. All right. I just want you to understand why there are the variances. Because there are two different Greek New Testaments that are being used to translate those copies of Scripture. We've got one more slide. This brings you up to the next thing beyond the King James Version of Scripture. And we'll pick it up from here and I will bring you into 2024 next Wednesday night. But the next thing beyond the King James translation was in 1885. That's when scholars in England revised the King James Version to reflect these findings that we've talked about. Because remember, back when the original King James was translated, 
they did not have. They hadn't been discovered or they hadn't been made available. They did not have the copies that date back to an earlier source. So in 1885, in England, there were a group of scholars that worked together to create what we call the English Revised Version. They had two parts to their goal, to work from more reliable Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts, primarily Greek though. Not much, if any, really has changed from the Hebrew and Aramaic. And to retranslate words based on newer language new linguistic information about the ancient languages. So you have the English Revised Version of 1885. A few years after that in America, the American Standard Version. Some of you may be familiar with the New American Standard. That's a revision of the Old American Standard, and we'll get to that next week. But in 1901, the American Standard Version was released as an Americanized version of the English version of Scripture. Hey, here's the thing. We speak English, but we don't speak the same English they speak across the pond. I I promise you that. Uh, Obviously, we can communicate easily, uh, but... uh, we, it's, it's not just exactly the same. We'll stop right there tonight, and then next week I'm going to bring us into 2024. Again, my, my hope is that this just helps you understand. I, I, you know, I think a lot of people just assume that the Bible has always been in English. And it hasn't. And I just want you to have a framework for understanding and let the Holy Spirit guide you and help you as you uh, process uh, the Word of God and which translation works best for you.